as the kids are making their way to their classes. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the book of Jonah. And feel free to turn to the table of comment, contents first and find what page it's on in your copy of the scriptures. The book of Jonah is in the Minor Prophets, wedged between Obadiah and Micah and some others. Um, it's, uh, it's in the Minor Prophets. By the way, the Minor Prophets are called the Minor Prophets not because they're less important, but because they're smaller. They're smaller than the major prophets, which are longer uh, books of prophecy. And so we're going to be spending the next handful of weeks in the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah, as you're probably aware, has probably been the biggest target of ridicule by skeptics in the entire Bible. But in reality, when we look at it, it probably doesn't even make the top 10 of supernatural miracles that we find in the scriptures. In Genesis chapter 1, what does God do? He creates the heavens and the earth out of nothing. Imagine that. There was nothing. And then he spoke the heavens and the earth into existence. In Genesis chapter 8, God causes a flood to cover the surface of the entire planet and then saves Noah and his family and the animals through it on the ark. In chapter 19 of Genesis, he causes a, a fire of brimstone and hail to, to completely destroy two cities. And of course, we know throughout the scriptures, people are living hundreds of years. Methuselah lived to be 969 years old. There's the story of the Exodus, where God takes an ocean and splits it in two so that his people can walk through on dry land, not to mention the miracles of Jesus in the Gospels and his own bodily resurrection from the dead. And the fish gives us a problem, right? Uh, the fish is the thing that, that causes us trouble. The bottom line is this. Either we believe that this is a supernatural book filled with supernatural stories about a supernatural God who does supernatural things, or we don't. Either we believe all of it or all of it is suspect. We certainly do not have the option to pick and choose that which we will believe and that which we will reject. And so for us, it's all true. 100% of it, even including this story about Jonah and the big fish. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is inspired by God. It is God's breath to us including this story about Jonah. We know Jonah to be a real person. He is mentioned in the book of 2 Kings, which is an historical record of the kings of Israel. And we're told in 2 Kings that Jonah was a prophet who prophesied during the reign of King Jeroboam II, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, about eight centuries before Jesus. So he was a real person in a historical account. And we simply do not have the option to interpret this as allegory because Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 12 refers to this story as an historical account. And when somebody rises from the dead, we should probably listen and believe what they say. Now, the book of Jonah, as we said, it's a minor prophet, means it's small. There's only four chapters. There's 48 verses in the entire book. A couple of you came up to me today and said, I read through it this week. That's probably a good thing to do each week as we're making our way through the book of Jonah. The central theme of this book, believe it or not, is not the fish. The fish is only mentioned four times. The central theme is not Nineveh. Nineveh is only mentioned five times. The central theme of this book, who bears the name of the prophet himself, the central theme is not Jonah. Jonah himself is only mentioned 18 times. The central theme of the book of Jonah is God, Yahweh. He's mentioned 38 times in only 48 verses. And in this book, he is presented to us as a loving, caring, patient, and pursuing God. He's presented as a God from whom it is both pointless and extraordinarily dangerous to run away from. 
He's presented to us as a God who pursues us when we run away from him. And he's presented as a God who graciously welcomes us back when we return to him. So let's read chapter 1 this morning, Jonah chapter 1, and allow God's word to teach us, and more than that, to form us into the image of Christ from this passage. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down as was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get... For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you so much for the privilege of gathering together as your people this morning to worship you. And God, we ask that you would be pleased and and indeed glorified by the attitude in which we have approached this morning, singing these songs not just as they are words on a screen, but, but... words that that echo the cry of our heart that you are good and gracious and holy that we have sinned against you in word thought and deed but you have made a way for man to be reconciled to you by sending your son your only son the lord jesus who lived the perfect life achieving a righteousness we never could in a million lifetimes and died a death that we deserve because of our rebellion against you so that those who would trust in your finished work on the cross and your resurrection three days later be forgiven of all of our rebellion against you have the debt of that the punishment we deserve because of that removed from us so that we might be reconciled to you that you might be our god and we might be your people so we thank you father for the privilege to sing those good things back to you and you have accomplished on our behalf through your son jesus christ And now we turn our attention to your word. We thank you for just your sovereign work in using the prophet Jonah in his day. And Father, through your spirit, inspiring him to write these very words such that we can know today as we read them that they are your very breath. But Father, help us to get underneath and behind the story of the fish to understand what you were doing in Jonah's life so that we can understand how you relentlessly pursue us when we run from you. 
We ask that you would do this, Father, this morning, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're introduced to this guy named Jonah in the first verse. We're told that he's the son of Amittai. He identifies himself as a prophet, a prophet who prophesied, again, eight centuries before Jesus was born to the kingdom of Israel under the reign of King Jeroboam II. So as a prophet, it was Jonah's job to bring God's messages to God's people, which is usually a cush job, right? It's usually a safe job to bring God's messages to God's people. But that's not what God asked Jonah to do here. God is telling Jonah here to bring a message that he has for the city of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was about 500 miles to the northeast of where Jonah was, and it was an incredibly huge city. It would have been a large city in our day today, but it was a booming metropolis in that day. Scholars say nearly a million people lived in Nineveh. It was the capital of the great Assyrian Empire. And so not only was it a very populous city with lots of people, but it was a great military city as well. It was located in what is modern-day Iraq, um, on the, the, just north of Baghdad, Iraq today, on the River Tigris, on Tigris River. And it was a city that was filled with mischief. It was filled with evil, filled with violence and rebellion. And as we know, this would be a city, this would be a people, an empire, that would later destroy the nation of Israel. And so just as you and I would be very apprehensive today, if God were to give us a message from him to take to the nation of Iraq or the nation of Iran, we would be very apprehensive about that. And so Jonah here is very apprehensive, very fearful and resistant to doing so with the Ninevites. And so what's the message that he wants them to bring? Verse 2, arise, the Lord says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So think of that. Their sin, their evil had become so great, this, the people of Nineveh, it had become so great, it had, it had come up before the Lord. It had been too much for him to bear. And so he sends Jonah to the people of Nineveh to preach a message of warning and repentance. Get right or else, in essence. And so Jonah here received very clear direction from the Lord. Take this message and bring it to that people. But verse 3 begins with words that will forever characterize this person that we know to be Jonah. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And by the way, my tongue's going to get tied when I say Tarshish because I don't know why, but I find that hard to say. Tarshish, Tarshish, Tarshish. He runs from the presence of the Lord. How silly is that? How can you run from God? He runs from the Lord. He's a runner. He was trying to run away from God. Now, we've all run away from God at different times in our lives. Some in this room might be running from God even now. But we've all at different times in our lives found ourselves running or trying to run away from God. And so we all have a little bit of Jonah inside of us. And so as we, as we look at this chapter in particular, I want us to look at Jonah, but I also want us to look at God. Remember, God's the central character of this book. And so we're going to unpack five traits of runners and three truths about God. The first trait about a runner that we see here is that runners flee from God's purpose and plan for them. Verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He's running from Yahweh, running from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who created the heavens and the earth. Jonah's a prophet. He knows better. 
he knows that it is impossible to run away from this God. He would have known by heart, by memory, the words of the psalmist David, who wrote the famous words in Psalm 139, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the shield, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell on the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Jonah knew full well the futility of trying to run from God. And yet he ran. His running from the presence of the Lord was an act of rebellion. God had given him a job to do, a mission, a purpose, a plan. And Jonah ran from that plan. And he ran in the exact opposite direction. Again, Nineveh was 500 miles to the northeast of where Jonah was at that point, And Tarshish was on the southern shore of Spain, 2,500 miles in the exact opposite direction. Jonah was in the easternmost part of the Mediterranean Sea. And Tarshish was in the westernmost part of the Mediterranean. You can't get any more Mediterranean than Tarshish, any further west. After that, it's, it's open ocean and fall off the end of the ocean as far as they knew. It was considered the end of the known world at that time. The point is that Jonah was running as far away from God's plan for him, from him, for him as he could possibly get. And the Bible calls this running from God rebellion. Now, rebellion is not ignorance. Ignorance is not knowing what to do. Jonah knew exactly what to do. God was very clear in the direction that he gave to Jonah. Rebellion is an active refusal to do what God clearly requires. Rebellion is a refusal to follow God's plan for you as laid out in God's word. We're told here that the word came, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh and take this message. And so for us, rebellion is clearly refusing to do that which is God's plan for us, God's will for us as laid out in the scriptures. It can be doing what is wrong. It can also be not doing what is right. It can be giving in to addictive behaviors, sinful relationships, sinful actions and lifestyles, attitudes, anything that God in his word strictly forbids because And he forbids it because he wants us to be different. He wants us to be set apart. He wants to be a people who are holy and righteous unto him. But we run from God and we do those things anyway. Rebellion can also be not doing what we ought to do. Praying, reading the scriptures, serving one another, loving our neighbor as ourselves, being witnesses of Jesus as we were told in the book of Acts things that God tells us that we ought to do as followers of Jesus, but we run from God and we refuse to do them. For Jonah, it was not doing what he ought to do. God told him to go to Nineveh and preach this message to them, and he rebelled. Maybe he thought that he knew better than God. Or maybe he really loved his safe, comfortable life more than he loved God. And he wasn't willing to risk his safety or his reputation by going to the Ninevites. What about you? In what way are you prone to run from God? You know what he requires of you, but your flesh refuses. Your sin nature rebels and you run from God. Maybe we think we know better than God. Or maybe we love our safe, comfortable life more than we love God. And we're not willing to risk the former, even if it means rebelling against God. We are Jonah. We all have the capacity in ourselves to run from God and to run from his plan and purpose for our lives. 
But we run because our flesh, our sinful nature, wants what it wants. Jonah didn't want to go to the Ninevites and preach this message to them. They were his enemies. He didn't like them. In fact, he, what he wanted was for God to judge them and curse them and punish them and destroy them. That's what he wanted. And what he didn't want, what he didn't want with a passion, was for God to be merciful to them and forgive them and restore them, which he knew was likely to happen if he went and brought God's message of warning and repentance. And so not only do we learn about runners here, we learn about God. And the first truth that we learn about God here is that, is that God seems to often press us in the areas of our life where we struggle with his lordship the most. He presses us where we struggle with his lordship the most. Think about it for Jonah. His desire to avoid any interaction with the Ninevites was resident in his heart long before God told him to go and preach to them. And so God knew that this would be a problem for Jonah. He knew that he would have a problem with this. But God loved Jonah enough to, to prod him and to press him in that very place where he struggled with the lordship of Yahweh the most. And he does the same with us, church. Where is it that you are most tempted to run from God? What command has he given you that you are most tempted to rebel against? Where are you most likely to be satisfied with disobeying God? Whatever it is, that area of your life is a matter of lordship. Will you obey your flesh, your inner want, or will you obey God? And God loves us enough. To keep pressing us in those areas where we struggle with his lordship the most. He loves you too much to let you keep disobeying him. And so he's going to do whatever he has to do to bring you back to him. A second trait of runners that we see here is that runners put themselves in dangerous positions. When we run from God, we put ourselves in great danger. Danger that we're usually oblivious to until it's too late. Years ago, I went on a whitewater canoeing trip with some friends of mine on the Buffalo River in the Ozarks of western Arkansas. But little did we know that a recent flood in the area had made that river much more dangerous to navigate than we or anyone else had known and as we came around one of the bends, we realized that a tree had been uprooted in that flood and had fallen over to where it, it, it completely blocked the course of the river. The water was going underneath, but nothing was going to go across the surface of the water. And there's nothing that we could do. The river current was so strong that we were unable to turn around at that point and we ended up losing one of our canoes that got lodged underneath the tree and one of our party nearly drowned in the process. The raging current of that river was leading us to a danger that we didn't even know was there until it was too late. Sometimes the raging current of our rebellious flesh is leading us to a danger that we don't even know is there that's what happened to jonah verse 3b he went down to joppa it's on the coast there from where he is and he found a ship going to tarshish imagine that what an amazing convenience for him what an incredible coincidence he just happens to find a ship that's going to the very place that he intends to go hey maybe maybe uh god was wrong when he sent me to nineveh Maybe I'm right in going to Tarshish, because after all, here's the ship. Can't you just hear Jonah rationalizing his rebellion just because things in the moment seem to be working out for him? 
Do you ever hear yourself doing that? None of us like to pay taxes, but we render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, right? But some of us might be tempted to be less than forthright on our returns. Maybe because we've gotten away with it in the past, and perhaps we rationalize and say, hey, it's going to allow me to give more to the church, right? Listen, just because you haven't been caught doesn't make it right. doesn't mean that God condones it. And the smooth sailing that you're enjoying as you run away from God, that you might somehow rationalize as his kind providence, is just the calm before the storm. Because rebellion against God always puts us in the path of danger even if we don't see it coming around the bend. Little did Jonah know that his rebellious decisions were leading him to danger. There was a storm brewing over the horizon, and it was coming for him. But we know that the storm didn't have a will of its own. And the scriptures leave absolutely no place for simply misfortunate coincidences. In fact, everyone on board this ship knew that someone had pulled the trigger. Someone was behind the storm. Even these pagan sailors knew that it wasn't just a bad coincidence, as in verse 5, each cried out to his God. But Jonah, who wrote this book, would later make it very clear by writing in verse 4 that the Lord hurled the wind upon the sea and there was a great and mighty tempest on the sea such that the ship threatened to break up the Lord hurled the storm upon him later as we'll see next week in chapter 2 as Jonah is in the belly of the fish as his heart of rebellion gives way to a heart of repentance he recognizes that it was God's hand that through this storm into motion. He will say in chapter 2, verse 3, for you cast me into the deep. In chapter 1, who throws Jonah into the ocean? The sailors. But in chapter 2, in the heart of repentance, he recognizes actually it was God's hand. It was God's hand that threw me into the ocean, utilizing the sailors. And so God is the one who sent the storm. And so now we, we learn a second important perhaps difficult lesson about God here. And that is that when we're running from God, God will often bring storms into our lives in order to bring us back to him. And so not only are we confronted with the sovereignty of God here, that God is sovereign over the winds and the waves and the fish, but we're also confronted with his use of affliction to bring Jonah back to him. You see, when we experience affliction and suffering, we wrestle with the sovereignty of God. We do. Because we recognize that God is in control. And he's either allowing this affliction, he's brought this affliction, or he's choosing not to remove this affliction from us. Which means that he has a purpose for it. And while we know the promise of Romans 8, 28, that, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, still in the midst of that affliction, in the midst of that suffering, sometimes it's very difficult for us to see the value and redeeming value and purpose in it. And so we wrestle with the sovereignty of God. But there's something more than the sovereignty of God that is at work here. Something we might call God's merciful hand of discipline. The scriptures tell us that God disciplines his beloved children so that they might return to him, so that they might grow in holiness and and righteousness. The writer of Hebrews tells us that God disciplines those whom he loves and so if you're running from God and there's no discipline, that's, that's, that's a tough place to be. God disciplines those whom he loves. In fact, the writer of Hebrews will go on to say in Hebrews 12 that he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. 
He goes on to say, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That's, that's rather obvious, right? Just ask Jonah in chapter 1. All discipline for the moment seems painful rather than pleasant. But he goes on. He says, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's a lesson that's hard for us to grasp in the midst of the affliction, but take it from Jonah who writes this after it's done. He sees how he was trained by it so that his life would yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness for the glory of God. So what is God doing in allowing affliction in our lives? He's conforming us to the image of his son, Jesus. And what is he doing when we're running from him and he brings his hand of discipline upon us? He's conforming us to the image of his son. We mentioned Romans 8, 28 a moment ago that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But that's followed by verse 29 that says this, for those whom he foreknew, when you see the foreknew, it means he foreloved those, those who were his beloved before the foundation of the world, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So when his hand of discipline comes upon us as we're running away from God, the reason why the hand of discipline is there is not just simply to punish us, it is to form us into the image of his son. He is working on us. And when we're running from God, rebelling against him in some way, either, either doing what is wrong or, or, or avoiding what we know to be right, we're running from God's purpose and plan for our lives. God in his mercy may bring his hand of discipline upon us to bring us back to him. To interrupt our running away, to interrupt our rebellion long enough for us to consider his grace and mercy, his kindness and his love for us. So that we, like the prodigal son, may return to him. Now, in our story at this point, Jonah's not there yet. God's hand of discipline is upon him, but Jonah in his heart is still running. So there's a third thing that we learn about runners, and that is that when, when runners experience danger and affliction, they try to escape it. They try to escape it. Where's Jonah in the middle of the storm? Into verse 5, the sailors are throwing their cargo into the sea. But we're told, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. <laughs> He's sleeping. The rain is pouring. The wind is howling. The waves are crashing against the hull of the ship. The ship is threatening to be torn apart in the surf. The sailors, these these sea-hardened mariners are so afraid of this storm that they're crying out to their God and they're throwing their cargo, their source of livelihood, they're sacrificing and throwing it out in order to be saved from this storm. They are deathly afraid. And in the middle of all this chaos, Jonah goes below deck and says, good time for a nap. Why was Jonah sleeping? I believe he was sleeping because when he was awake, he was unavoidably and inescapably conscious of the fact that Yahweh was relentlessly pursuing him. You see, at least when he was asleep, he felt as if he could escape the gaze of the Almighty. Jonah was sleeping because he was trying to escape God's relentless pursuit of him how do we do that how do we try to escape god's relentless pursuit of us when we are running from god in rebellion how about you how might you try to escape god's relentless pursuit of you the reality is when we're running from god our world is replete with opportunities and things with which we can try to escape God's relentless pursuit of us. Some people turn to entertainment. 
because we live in a culture where we're inundated with entertainment to serve us and to feed something in us that needs to escape. Television, internet, on our handheld devices. Some people turn to food. Some people turn to their work, their career. Anything to occupy our time and attention so that we don't have to give attention to the fact that God is relentlessly pursuing us to bring us back to him. Others try more drastic measures to try to escape that. Turning to drinking too much or drugs. But the problem with trying to avoid God is that he doesn't go away. And, and, and those those things, those afflictions that he brings into our life in order to bring us back to him, they, they don't go away either. The storm does, doesn't just go away just because we're trying to escape it. Does Jonah's escape mechanism work for him? No, it doesn't. And neither do ours. We can run from God, but we can't outrun God. And we can try to avoid God's relentless pursuit of, of us but our God will always find a way to stir us from our slumber, stir us from our sleep. Jonah is stirred from his sleep by the captain who says in verse 6, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God that you serve will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Because that was a very real danger they might perish and so the fourth trait of a runner is that runners don't just endanger themselves but they endanger the people that are around them as well they endanger those closest to them as the captain himself insinuates there in verse six they were in great peril because of what jonah had done jonah's rebellion was endangering everyone on board the ship and friend, when we run from plan for us, we're putting not just ourselves in danger, but those closest to us. In recent years, presidents, CEOs, and even religious leaders have tried to convince us that the things done behind closed doors don't affect our public lives. That our private sins won't affect anybody else. And that is one of Satan's biggest lies so that we might rationalize our rebellion and sinful behaviors. Our rebellion against God, our running away from God, puts those closest to us in danger. Consider the father who's caught up in pornography. He runs the very real risk of destroying not just his marriage, but his family, alienating his children. The gossip runs the risk of decimating someone's character. The alcoholic runs the risk of killing others that are on the road. So if you're running from God this morning, I want you to ask yourself a real important question. Who might you be endangering with your rebellion? Think on their name. Put their face in your mind. Who might you be endangering in your running away from God, whatever it is? Is your running away from God worth hurting them? Because that's a very real risk when we run from God. The sailors on this ship, they, they cast lots to see who's responsible for this storm. And the lot falls on Jonah. And, and I find that mildly comical, right? Here's Jonah. He's trying to escape any responsibility for any of this stuff. He goes down below deck and, and he's even found out by a dice game. Not, not, just, not just a storm finds him in the middle of the Mediterranean. He's found out by a dice game. Really, God? Of course I'm found out. And so they quiz Jonah. Who are you? What do you do? Who do you work for? What's your country? Who's your God? And they find out that he's a Hebrew. 
And apparently they know something about this Hebrew God. Word has begun to get out about this Hebrew God. Maybe they heard about this God parting the Red Sea. Maybe they heard about this God who caused a flood to cover the whole water. But but when Jonah says in verse 9 that the God whom he serves made the sea and the dry land, we're told that they were exceedingly afraid. And And I would imagine perhaps a bit ticked off at Jonah. Wait, 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 Jonah, wait, you're running away from the God that made the sea and the dry, you ran away from that God? We're in for it now. So they ask him in verse 11, what shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? You know this God who made the sea and the, what what do we have to do? What does he say in verse 12? Pick me up and hurl me into the sea that the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. The fifth and final trait that we learn about runners here is that runners are irrationally stubborn. Those who are running from God are irrationally stubborn in their rebellion. Look at Jonah's irrational thinking here. He, 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 he suggests that they kill him by throwing him overboard. He doesn't have any reason to suspect that God's going to rescue him. He certainly would not have a clue about the fish that was going to swallow him. So what is Jonah really saying here? What he's really saying is, I would rather die than obey God. What a depth of stubborn rebellion that is. I would rather die than obey God in this. And you know, it didn't have to come to this. It didn't have to come to the point where Jonah felt like his only way of escape was his own death. He could have gotten down on his knees right then and there, right on the deck in front of the sailors and everyone, and God would have forgiven him. God would have removed the storm, and we never would have had this book about Jonah being swallowed by a fish. Listen, the longer our rebellion lasts, the harder it is to make our way back to him. Someone once said that man is the only animal that runs faster when he loses his way. And isn't that true? Think about animals. All other animals know that when you're lost, you slow down. You stop. You get your bearings. You figure out where you are, where you've been running, and you adjust the direction that you're headed in. What what does man do? What do we do when we're running from God? When we realize that we're lost and in trouble, we just keep running. We just keep heading further and further down that path away from God, getting further and further from Him, and harder and harder to get back. Jonah was presented with a crisis at that point, right there on the deck in front of the sailors and everyone else. He was presented with a clear choice. And instead of choosing to turn from his rebellion and get right with God, he chose to maintain his posture of running from God. So friend, if you're running from God in some way this morning, God has you here for a reason. And we're right here in the middle of a deck in the middle of a storm. And this is your point of crisis, and you've got a decision to make. Either you're going to keep running from God, or you're going to make a decision this morning to stop running from God, to turn around and return to Him. Faithfully, Jonah chose to keep running, and so he told them to throw him into the sea. But what do they do? Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Sailors didn't want to throw them into the sea. They said, no, no, we're going to row hard. We're we're going to row hard against God. (laughs) Which means that they cared more about Jonah than Jonah cared about himself, which is sad. And so they try to row against God. What a futile sight that must have been until finally they give in, they give up, 
and they throw Jonah overboard. Verses 14 and 15. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Notice that these are pagans that are praying to Yahweh here. Let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. As soon as they throw Jonah overboard, the seas were calmed. And then look at the response of the sailors when they see that God had relented and caused the storm to be stilled for them. Verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Here's a ship full of unbelievers, pagan sailors, worshiping Yahweh. So the final thing that we learn about God here is that God redeems our stories of running from him for his glory. God can use your story of him bringing you back to himself as a testimony to his love and mercy. If you've run from God at some point in your life and God has laid his hand of discipline upon you and he's brought you back to himself, then you have a story of God's mercy and relentless love. And if you share that story with the people that God has placed within your spheres of influence, God can use that story of his mercy and grace in order to bring others back who are still running from him. So they thrown Jonah into the sea, and of course we know what happens next. Verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. God could have appointed anything to catch Jonah on the side of the ship. He could have appointed a rowboat. He could have appointed a tugboat. He could have appointed anything, but he appoints a fish to swallow him. Why? Because Jonah is still running from God. Jonah stays in the fish for three days and three nights. Why? Because Jonah is still running from God, which is completely irrational. Jonah remains stubbornly committed to running from God and running from God's plan for him. And yet God, in his grace, remains stubbornly committed to pursuing Jonah and not letting up on him until he repented and returned to the Lord which is what we will see him do in chapter 2 next week. But friend, you don't have to wait until next week to return to the Lord. If you're running from God this morning, you've got an opportunity right here, right now, on this deck in the middle of this storm to turn around. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you've been running from God even your entire life, he will welcome you to himself this morning if you will turn from your sin and your self-rule and turn to Jesus Christ in faith as your only hope for rescue. God sent Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to live a perfect life, to earn a righteousness that we must have in order to be reconciled with God. But we will never earn that righteousness in a million lifetimes. He earned that righteousness in his life. The Son of God did. And then Jesus went to the cross to pay the price of the sins of mankind so that those who place their faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope, they might be forgiven and restored to a right relationship with him and have the hope of being reconciled to God, not just in this life, but in the next. So repent, believe on Christ, and become a new worshiper of God. If you've already come to faith in Jesus as Lord, you might recognize that this morning you're still running from God in some area of your life. You too have an opportunity this morning to return. For you, it's a matter of confessing that rebellion, repenting of it, turning away from it in faith, and turning to Christ, and then resting, brother and sister, resting in the grace that is already yours in Christ. And it doesn't matter how far you've gone away from him, if you belong to him through faith, then he will not turn you away if you return to him. And then finally, if you have a story of redemption, 
God has welcomed you back from a season of running. Not only thank God for his grace, but why not commit this morning to sharing that story of redemption with someone else that God has placed in your life in hopes that God might use it to bring an end to their running as well. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you in your kind providence that you have given us this book, that you have told us this story about the prophet Jonah, with whom we can identify so readily. As we, we can recall so easily to mind the seasons of running from you, rebelling against you, wanting our way instead of your way. And your relentless pursuit of us was so great that you sent your very own son into the storm of this world to take on flesh and become one of us and feel the pain and suffering of life in a world of sin. And yet he had no sin. And he went to the cross, this son of yours, and he died in the place of sinners like us. Oh, what a means of rescue you have provided in Jesus so that runners like us can be found through repentance of sins and faith in Jesus, we might be found by you, returned to right relationship with you. And so, Father, I pray for those in this very room who've never professed faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe they've tried to earn your favor by doing good. Maybe they've tried to earn salvation by not doing bad. Lord, show them the folly of that. And in the keen awareness of their sinful rebellion and lost state. Show them this means of rescue through Jesus who died and rose again for sinners like us. Grant unto them faith to trust in Jesus as their only hope of rescue. We ask, Father, that you would bring a harvest of new worshipers of Jesus through the testimony of Jonah's life. And Father, for those who do know you, who in our sinful nature, in our flesh, we still battle with this tendency to run from you. Father, may we see the goodness and the grace that is found in the open arms of Jesus. May we be sustained by the same grace that however many years ago saved us. And may we seek to walk in a manner worthy of that good news for your glory. For we long to see you again, Lord, where our faith is made sight. And Father, would you use those stories of redemption, of rescuing us out of the storm of sin and doubt. May you use those stories in us, Father, to bring your lost children back to yourself. Use us to be faithful witnesses of Jesus and faithful testimonies of the grace that you have shown to us that you might rescue them as well. Father, may you do all this for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.